Hello, everybody out there. This is Glenn Lowry. I'm a professor at Brown University, and I'm also host of The Glenn Show. I'm with my bi-weekly conversation partner, John McWhorter, who's professor at Columbia University. We're the black guys. And uh, we're back talking about <laughs> stuff. Welcome, John. Thank you, Glenn. It's good to be back. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of in the doldrums here in February. I've kind of got the winter blues. I really need for the sun to be in the sky, for the flowers to come up, for the birds to start tweeting. Do we both ah, have that? Man. February is the worst month for me. Yeah. 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 There's no light. It's cold. Yeah. Hate it. January and February for but me. But you continue to produce your column at the New York Times. What have you been writing about lately? I've been doing a lot of culture pieces lately, just um, various things that I'm seeing despite the February doldrums where I, I really worry about the direction things are going in some ways. And I, there's a kind of criticism of cultural products that come out these days, the idea being that it doesn't reflect the perspectives of mostly young and mostly not white people, and that therefore there's something contestable about it, that valuable art especially popular art but even you know more formal art will be something that contests domination especially by white people and if it isn't doing that then it is part of the problem and therefore dismissible it hasn't done its job and i think if we pull the camera back we all know that that's a very narrow view of what art can be in general nobody would say all art must address the ills of differentials in power. Almost anybody says, of course not. But when it comes to us, when it comes to issues of race, it's supposed to be different. And that view, which is, of course, held very strongly by the elect, is beginning to affect institutions that can't defend themselves or institutions that really deserve more respect. And so I don't think that the new movie of West Side Story is dismissible because it isn't told from the musical and even verbal point of view of actual Puerto Ricans living in that actual time. The fact that Jewish white men smoking cigarettes wrote it in the 50s does not invalidate the high art involved in it. It would be very nice if Puerto Ricans wrote the same story from their perspective. I hope they do. And in a way, we've seen something kind of like it with Manuel Lynn Miranda's depiction of Dominican life in New York City. Of course, that's not pure either. But still, there's something. Progress happens. But this issue of, of dismissing the West Side Story musical as something some old white people wrote is willfully simplistic. And it's a very narrow view of what art made by people in multicultural circumstances can be. So I wrote one piece about that. Did you see uh, the movie? I have not seen the movie. I've read, you know, copious commentary on the movie. I, I will see the movie in due course. Problem is, I can't convince my wife to see the movie. <laughs> my beautiful wife, my I'll wonderful come. wife, Lawan, the Bernie Sanders voter, the Democratic Socialist, uh, the you know skeptic about uh, anything that the establishment are doing, has been reluctant to see the movie. And since we spend movie watching time more or less as a, a common activity, I've wanted to see it, but I haven't. Maybe I haven't had the courage or. Maybe I have had the wisdom not to push too hard uh, about, about seeing Bernstein. Uh, Bernstein as rendered by Steven Spielberg. 
Uh, I mean, after all, the movie is not about black resistance to white domination, and and therefore, almost by definition, is not of interest to certain people whom I live with. God bless her. Um, but I'm assuming <laughs> that it's the curators of culture, it's the creative directors at the theater companies, and it's the publishers and editors at the publishing houses that put out the books, and it's the script writers and the producers and the Hollywood machine that produces TV and uh, film, uh, that it's the museum curators. I've been reading Heather McDonald at the City Journal. I know you don't sully yourself by reading City Journal, John, but I do from time to time. Actually, Glenn, that's that's really not true. I do take a look through every oh. issue. I don't think of it as I'm as sorry, dirty. Dad. No. I didn't mean to relegate no. you to that Brooklyn elite elect category of uh, too good to look at City Journal. I'm sorry. I'm no. glad to hear that. But anyway, I'm just saying. I have leanings. I'm just saying but, she and yeah. others have been commenting that it's this people who have been produced with masters of fine art degrees from fine institutions like the one that you teach at or the one that I teach at. Who, in, who are 35 or 40 years old, who have uh, got positions of influence and have career ambitions, and who are deciding how to frame the artistic presentation, and who think that it's part of their job to bring their uh, uh, subversive, transgressive political uh, vision about anti-racism into their curation of these uh, artistic uh, uh, inheritances or the production of new work. And so you, you're pushing uphill. Are you not to, to contravene that? I mean, you're, you're like behind the times. I mean, we're making art for the 21st century, or we are displaying 19th century art in the 21st century, and we have to do it in a way that's consistent with, quote, our values, close quote. Mm -hmm. They are people who think that their our values are the values of more people than they are. It is a vocal and powerful minority, and it's the job of the rest of us to, as it were, although this would be felt as so ironic by them, speak truth to power. Because the problem with their idea is that for them, the value of art is in the extent to which it has its fist up in the air and questions white hegemony. But very quickly, it becomes not does this question white hegemony as much as the beauty of it, the whole value of it, the reason we evaluate it is whether or not it does that rather than its quality notwithstanding. And the idea is that you certainly don't want to use the metrics of quality that we use to evaluate impressionism or cubism or something like that to take pictorial art. There have to be other metrics, but it's rare that anybody specifies exactly what they are. And in practice, just what's good is that it isn't old and white. And that's one, too easy. It's just, it's so tempting. It's like, you know, hot dogs instead of learning how to cook. And two, it is, it's, it's not necessary. You can decenter whiteness in a way while also upholding basic standards of evaluation, which do not cease to be relevant just because the people who created the art don't happen to be white people from Connecticut or from Germany or Spain or France. And so, yeah, I think that there is room for contesting this because it's very clear that most people don't agree. Most people seeing the West Side Story movie 
Loved it. It wasn't a box office success. Big surprise. We're in a pandemic, and now you usually see movies at home, and everybody has known that one was going to stream you know, yeah. pretty quickly. That's not the issue. The issue is whether or not it's going to be a cherished cultural token. People like it. There's a certain kind of person who goes in not wanting to like it for what is, frankly, despite its brownness, a very parochial reason. But yeah, it's clear that there is a certain kind of person in the arts who feels that that's their mission. And it's interesting. Being somebody who can pass in a way, I've known these people for you know 30 or 40 years, that kind of person, if they don't know where you stand, and that's happened to me now and then, express themselves very freely. And it's clear that there's like a spinning saw blade. You know, there is no addressing a person like this. The way they really feel is if it's old and white, well, yeah. fuck it. Oh, oh, come on. I mean, I yeah, mean, come exactly on, come say. on. Uh-huh, right. uh-huh. That's how they feel. And so you can't address them. You, they, you can't get through to them. They're much more polite when they talk to the New York Times. But we have to work around them because, yeah, they're going to just basically ruin all of our museums and all of our theater subscription series, et cetera. Heather is on a tear. She thinks the foundations of civilization are being pulled down or torn up by all of these woke and, you know, crusading anti-racist curators at museums and whatnot. Uh, but about West Side Story, does it, I haven't seen the film. Does Spielberg adhere closely, I assume, to the score of Bernstein? Does he adhere to the, to the text of Sondheim, which was so very clever and witty and catchy? I mean, I can almost still, Officer Krupke, I mean, I can almost still recite some of those, you know, really nice little ditties that, uh, that those guys came up with. Do you see that in the film? It's all there, and the script has been vastly reformed so that the Puerto Ricans are much more human and situated in a real world with acknowledged injustice than they were in 1957. It's been done by, for example, Tony Kushner, who's not exactly a slouch. So it's a more intelligent movie than the first one. It's more intelligent than the original stage musical, but it is itself, and it, the score is there. The score of West Side Story is so sophisticated and so beautiful that it's regularly taught as classical music, including by me. I do a music history class, and, you know, usually I do it in the spring. And, you know, there are leaves coming on the trees, and we're finished with all the hard stuff. We've gotten past the, the early 20th century classical music you pretend to like, such as by Schoenberg, etc. And then we get to, I, I do two weeks on high American musical theater. And when you're doing West Side Story, you are teaching as hard as you are when you're teaching Wagner or when you're teaching Mozart. The music is complicated. When I sit down to the piano, I have to practice the night before because you know my sight reading isn't good enough to render the music just instantly sitting there. I have to work at it just like I have to you do have for all the, the other class in a studio and where you can play the piano as you're giving the lecture. There's a room that, several rooms, you know, God bless Columbia on this, that have a grand piano. And so you can demonstrate at the piano. And I'm not exaggerating my abilities. I'm a good, I'm a good cabaret pianist, but if I have to play from a score, I have to look at it the night before. And with Bernstein, that I have to do as much as I have to do to, you know, teach them Don Giovanni. I have to be prepared. And yet there's a certain kind of person who sees the movie and just thinks, oh, to hell with this. And, you know, part of it is a very respectable orientation. I completely get this. You're 35, you might be 55, and you don't want to hear this. 
you don't like that kind of singing. I get it. All right, fine. So you don't like legit singing. You find it too old-fashioned. Okay. But to dismiss that as, well, it's old and it's white and anything that sounds that way was written by people I don't like and who didn't like me and therefore forget it. And so anything that's good is going to be music that relates to me and I'm going to see people who look like me. No. Ignorant. It's, it's frankly ignorant. If you can't see beyond yourself, you're blinkered. And I don't care who says it, it's a blinkered attitude, whereas many people genuinely think that that's ahead of the curve. Reject the white stuff because they were white and they wouldn't have liked me. No, no, they're dead, frankly. It's not about whether they liked you. It's not about the nature of their civilization. Yours is doing better than theirs. And why not just try to take in as much as you can of humanity's products before you drop dead? You know, are you going to strike this pose until you drop dead? But I get the feeling a certain kind of person feels differently. So Heather, I mean, almost everything Heather says, I agree with. I take issue with the tone that she says it in. She's mad as hell. I don't know if civilization is... Excuse me for interrupting. She's mad. She's angry. This is her stuff. She loves it. And she just, you know. I get it. And I don't know if it's civilization, but it is a significant portion. Yeah. Okay, so listeners out there, I want you guys to understand that if you have to pay 60 grand a year to get your kid educated at Columbia, it's worth every penny of it because they can avail themselves of uh, music uh, history and uh, education from the great John McWhorter. And I can't imagine a better experience. <laughs> I, I want to take that class myself. So do you get, do you get jazz in your uh, compendium of great 20th century music? I mean, the Duke Ellingtons, the Charlie Minguses, oh, yeah. the John Coltrane's, the Miles Davises, and so forth. You know, literally all that except Mingus. I mean, we, you only have a uh-huh. week or two to do it, and I never, I didn't fit him in. But the other three, yeah, you, you teach jazz, and I show them why jazz isn't boring. You know, most people think it's dull. And I'm showing them this is what, you know, Coltrane was doing. Here, listen to, um, listen to Coleman Hawkins doing mm. Body and Soul. Just sit back and I dim the lights. Listen to that. And I, first, I, I play them the original song, which, you know, almost nobody wants to hear now. This is yeah. this old song. Now listen to what he, he did to it. And then you bring in Columbia's resources. You bring in a student jazz ensemble. And they then... They show them, and you get that for free from the class. So, yeah, you give them the jazz. It's not a completely old white class, especially these days. But, yeah, you have to wait until the end to get to the black part. But, yeah, that's that's part of it, too. I make sure to get that in Ellington. Yeah. So, yeah. And then we all adjourn for the summer. It's a, it's a fun course. Sounds terrific. Sounds terrific. Okay. On our agenda here is the issue of affirmative action. I gather I've been corrected by... Um, my my friend David Kaiser, the historian, I think the last time we were on talking about this, I said the court was going to take the issue up in the current session. And I gather that uh, Roberts has put it off to the fall because they're somebody said they're that going to me to be last deciding week. Yeah. the abortion uh, cases, and maybe uh, Chief Justice Roberts doesn't want to have two blockbuster opinions that may go th- the way that a lot of people are not going to like. Maybe Roe is going to be overturned. Mm. Maybe affirmative action is going to be restricted much more severely than ever in the past by this conservative court. But the Mm -hmm. issue is in the air, and it it falls to us to hold forth on it to some degree. So I'm wondering what what your preliminary thoughts are about the challenges coming up now to affirmative action. Well, Glenn, I want to ask you, you something. 
Do you think race should have anything to do with university admissions preferences? And now that's not the question I want to ask you. Let's try this. The Supreme Court is going to strike down racial preferences. I think we can pretty that much assume that that's forecast, what's about to happen. But we don't have a crystal ball. We don't, but let's assume yeah. what seems likely. And what that means is that at schools like Harvard, there are going to be fewer black people admitted unless they really rejigger the, the process. And even if they do, there are going to be fewer black yeah. people there. How do you feel about the fact that the number of black people at schools like that will go down significantly? You know what the story is going to be. Used to be X teen percent, and now it's down to 7%. For many people, that is the beginning of the end of civilization, as you know. We can imagine the editorials. How do you feel about that? They say that it's the resegregation of American higher education. They're going to say we've turned the clock back to 1970. Um, I think there are a number of intervening factors that need to be taken into account. The representation of African Americans would probably decrease in the face of any negative opinion by the court that finds. For example, that Harvard discriminated against the Asian applicants who were suing uh, through the good offices of the Students for Fair Admissions. It'll probably decrease. How much is a question. Let's just say, I don't know the number right offhand, but I think it's pretty close to population parity that there's like 12%, 11%, 13% of the entering classes at these elite schools like Harvard or the University of North Carolina are Black. And let's just say that that falls to 7% or 8%. I don't think it's the end of the world, but I think the universities will be looking for end runs around the the court's restrictions. So, for example, doing away with standardized tests as a requirement, you have to take the SAT or the ACT, you must submit a score, we're going to factor that in. We don't have to look at the SAT or the ACT. We can declare that we're no longer going to require. You can submit if you choose, but we're not going to require. Then that means a large proportion of the applications will be students who do not submit uh, test scores, maybe 30% or 40%. And maybe there will be many African-American students among those who don't submit test scores because, well, we know that on the average, their scores are lower. The university could, by eliminating the requirement of submitting the test, in effect, get around the requirement that it treat applicants with the same test scores in the same way. That is to say, the students who get high on the test will submit their test scores and they'll be judged. The students who get low on the test will not submit test scores. They'll still be admitted to some degree. And the African American portion of that population who don't submit scores will be bigger than their numbers in the total population because their scores are lower, the school will have a workaround. In doing so, the school will dilute the screen, the fineness of the screen in terms of academic excellence that it's using to admit. And it will, in effect, water down the the, uh, intellectual... The the Intellectual... Do we know that? Well, we know that the tests correlate with measures of post-admissions performance, like like grades in the first year's courses. 
It's a myth that they have yeah, no success. The tests are yeah. predictive right. of performance in the classroom, but performance in the classroom is assessed subjectively. What, what's a good essay, for example? Um, students may stay away from STEM courses, which would be more definitive in separating the wheat from the chaff by requiring that your mathematical and analytical abilities are, uh, if, if not high enough, will be um, revealed by your performance in the class. But with respect, in a sociology course where students are called upon to write an essay exam, uh, it's, it's not so clear that the low performance on a test score would be reflected in the low grades in the exam. Grade inflation is another factor that's at work in the post-admissions environment, even if the, quote, quality of the class has been reduced by changing the admissions criteria. It's a, it's a subtle kind of uh, set, of, set of issues. I mean, what's taught, how it's taught, how it's evaluated, it's a subtle set of issues. You're going to see this uh, diversity in, let's say, um, students who are honored by being uh, awarded uh, nominations for uh, Marshall Fellowship or Rhodes Scholarship or something like that. You're still going to see minority students in good numbers amongst them. You're going to be dared to say, well, are they of the same quality if they came in with lower scores on average? And you're going to be, uh, I think, in the losing position of making any argument about qualitative disparity uh, because, in effect, you'll be saying what Ibram X. Kendi says, which is that if you attribute the disparity to anything other than racism, you're saying there's something wrong with black people. Um, so I don't know. I didn't directly answer your question. It's bad for not just the image of the college, but I think for the quality of the experience of students at the college and the undergraduate programs, if the proportion of blacks amongst the student body were to fall in half. I think that's bad. I think that's bad for the country. Um, I think the issue for affirmative action should not be all or nothing. It should be how much and how do you do it. I think that Big disparities in academic uh, uh, accomplishment amongst racial groups who are admitted are bad because they get reflected after admission and big differences in the performance of those students. But I think that you could dial back the intensity of affirmative action and live with somewhat lower percentages and still get the benefits of diversity. Um, if uh, the colleges were willing to do so, but uh, they're 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 not, and I I worry about the institutionalization of uh, racial preferences as an ongoing practice because it in effect concedes the uh, as as just a fact of nature the disparity between racial groups and intellectual accomplishment and uh, develops a way of accommodating that disparity without actually addressing the underlying causes of it, which of course come back upstream to secondary and primary education, 
and so on. Uh, I don't I don't blame a college for wanting to manage its admissions process so as to curate its admissions process, if you will, so as to create a, a community on campus which is diverse. Uh, but I think that relying on differential assessment criteria when admitting students concedes the uh, and, and, and steps away from the harder problem for our society of developing the intellectual potential of African-American students to a point where it's not necessary to use different standards to admit them. And of course, the question is, what does that development consist of? And I think that um, people like you and me are responsible for stepping up and specifying exactly what that is. In the wake of this debate, if we don't want to be perceived as taking the side of the right wing or not understanding that there's injustice in society. Because, you know, my feeling about this sort of thing is based on, I openly admit it's based on what is probably at this point an unreachable gut level bias, which is the things that I've actually seen, which is that I happened to be present in the mid and late 90s at the University of California at Berkeley in the wake of the first serious undermining of old-fashioned 80s-style racial preferences. And I saw too many clear indications that part of what this problem is is a certain sense that really hitting the highest note is somehow unblack. And what makes that even more pernicious is that nobody ever says it in so many words. Very few people are aware of it because we're all fish who don't know we're wet in certain ways as human beings. And if you've been minted in that culture, you're often not aware that it's a cultural perspective at all. And so you're inclined to say, well, you know, there are plenty of anti-intellectual people in any culture, which is exactly. certainly true. And it's not that there's something inherently anti-intellectual to blackness. But I do believe that in the wake of desegregation of schools in the 50s and 60s, there arose a resentment among black kids of the way white kids and teachers treated them then. And that ended up creating a lasting meme. And, you know, people like Kendi say that when I say this, I'm saying that there's something wrong with black people. But that's not what I just said. I said racism ended up creating a meme because if people don't like you, well, you might not like them and what they're trying to make you do. That's perfectly human. But I will never forget, this is, it was one of those revelatory moments, I don't believe in God, but it's almost as if a God revealed something to me. It was in the wake of racial preferences being discontinued at Berkeley, and this is one of those times where I'm not out, where it's just assumed that any black professor has a certain set of views. And I will never forget the black undergraduate who was working in the minority undergraduate recruitment office. So there's a whole office designed to right. encourage black perspectives to join. And everybody should remember, I'm not talking about a 55-year-old administrator. I'm talking about a 20-year-old undergraduate who was working in that office. And we were talking about the ban. And she said, so casually, so casually, she said, we're all worried that if black students are performing at that high a level, i.e. the ones that don't need preferences, black students who perform at that high a level won't be concerned with a black community at Berkeley. She just said it very casually. She fully expected me to nod my head. I probably did, to be honest. And what she meant was that they thought that if you're a black kid who doesn't need to have standards lowered to come to Berkeley, then you're probably not really black. You're probably some whiteified, as you might put it, kid, who won't, won't want to know other black people at Berkeley. She said that very casually. And then 
unbidden over the next few years. I left California, but I heard from two black students who'd been admitted under that atmosphere, who independently told me, and I didn't canvass and ask people this, they independently told me that when they got to campus, they had felt, no, they, they didn't say they had felt, they said they got flack from some of the older black students who were instantly suspicious of them because they had gotten into Berkeley without needing the racial preferences that had, but everybody was so upset had been discontinued. That has stuck with me. That sort of thing really sticks with a person when then you hear people's resistance to racial preferences being discontinued because you can't help thinking that the cause of it is something much larger than just structural racism in society. An ideological meme can settle in and thrive even beyond what initially caused it. And that sense of black identity as being not being as nerdy as a certain kind of white kid, it's understandable, but I think it plays a part. And then you listen to all of this idea that we have to change our sense of what standards are because we need to have enough black kids. And I just feel it as demeaning to black people. I have a very hard time seeing past that being the issue. And some people will say, well, we needed to reform our conception of what these tests are and what a good student is anyway. That might be true, but nobody would have come up with it. Nobody would have really brought it to fruition if it weren't for black kids. And I just feel that what about, as you're saying, trying to figure out how to bring black kids up to the standards of the others, instead of saying we just have to change the standards. I feel like the real supposition is that black kids just aren't up to it. But if you say that, you are a renegade. There's something wrong with you. You're just shilling for the right wing. I don't believe that, but I don't think I can be budged. I don't think I can wrap my mind around another way of looking at this at this point because of what I've seen. And I hate to make that kind of argument, but it's, it's me. I'm not without sympathy for that, that long and detailed uh, expression of concern that you just provided. I'm not, I, I agree with you. You get it. I get it in part. Uh, from my own experience, which is uh, earning my PhD in the 1970s. I'm older than you are, John, unfortunately, but there you are <laughs> at MIT. And I tell you, I mean, people will dismiss this kind of thing as elitism. And they will sneer when you talk about meritocracy. I had the sense at MIT in the 1970s as a PhD student in economics that I was among the best of the best and that the currency of the realm was creative research at the very frontier of the discipline. We're, we're, we're the lead edge of this intellectual enterprise, which is modern economics, finding new frontiers and pushing out the frontiers. Technical virtuosity, I'm talking about statistical inference, I'm talking about mathematical modeling, I'm talking about computer implementation, I, I'm, I'm talking about the refined, exquisite, uh, you know, uh, truly top 10%, top 1% kind of stuff. And uh, it was self-conscious. Everybody knew that we were at the frontier. Every, everybody knew that, uh, you know, we were in the midst of this, this truly extraordinary intellectual undertaking that, that we were being inducted into. Now, uh, there was an underrepresentation of African-Americans in this enterprise at, 
MIT in the 1970s, there were very, very, very few of us, first of all, in the program at all. And secondly, amongst those of us in the program, few of us who were commensurate with this kind of extraordinary achievement. I think it's true about that at Stanford. And I think not just in economics, but also in the STEM disciplines, and perhaps not only in the STEM disciplines, but perhaps also in some of the humanities. Uh, rarified. Okay? This is not for everybody. This is only for the people who are really, really good at this. Now, if you have an underrepresentation of African Americans in those venues and you attempt to remedy it by lowering the standards, you're not going to get equality. You're going to get some kind of condescension, patronization, uh, suspicion of incompetence from the people who are the custodians of the inner sanctum. They may mouth the platitudes of equity, but in their heart of hearts, they know who's quote unquote really good and who's not. They, they know who is, you know, playing at the frontier and who's barely able to keep up. Uh, and they may not say it, but they, in their heart of hearts, know. And when African-Americans are not really playing the game the way the game should be played, it's a little bit like putting a white guy out there as a point guard in the NBA who is not really playing the game. And you know that he's only there to please the crowd because there needs to be a white person on the court, but he's actually not an equal participant in enterprise. He doesn't have the honor honor and the respect that he's uh, ordinarily uh, occasions uh, such achievement. It cheapens the achievement. It puts an asterisk on the achievement. Now, uh, it's no surprise that people under such conditions who really are themselves, that is black people, aware of the actual nature of the enterprise and are aware of their own relative mediocrity at the undertaking will develop the meme that you just got describing, describing, which is a meme that, you know, our blackness becomes elevated in importance. We start to see the discipline as one that is racially hierarchic in some way and, and doesn't respect our uh, potential contributions. We see those uh, blacks who are in our midst, but who are themselves going shoulder to shoulder with the absolute leaders in this rarefied enterprise as being not quite black, as having somehow sold out, um, you know, and then I think you can find that, uh, you know, if you, if we start naming names here, we'll, we'll get into trouble. And, you know, at least I will, if I start naming names, but I think, I think I see that. I think I see that dismissal of the, um, engagement with the technically demanding aspects of the profession as being somehow not connected to the actual needs of black people. I, I think I see these kind of arguments being made. Uh, and I think they are the fruit of, uh, of the uh, compromise of uh, meritocratic judgment that affirmative action inevitably uh, entails. So um, I'm, of, I'm, yeah. I'm of two minds. I don't think, I'm sorry, go yeah, ahead, John. I've been talking for a while. Today's show sponsor is The Spectator magazine. Having been founded in 1828, 
It's the longest running magazine in the world. The mission statement they sent me says they believe that journalism must be witty and insightful and that ideas should be discussed without the constant threat of cancellation. They're neither right or left wing and consider their mission to convey intelligence, not ideology. They believe that life is bigger than politics, which is why the magazine covers arts, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. The slogan they use to convey this is, the spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. So sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free spectator hat. Just use offer code GLENN, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Go to spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and use offer code GLENN. I've been aware of The Spectator for many years and feel comfortable saying that even if you disagree with its politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. Their contributors include many prominent and sometimes controversial authors from Christopher Buckley to PJ O'Rourke to Douglas Murray to Slavoj Žižek, from the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture to cultural cuisine, The Spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of The Spectator for free, plus a free Spectator hat when you subscribe at spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer. Use offer code Glenn at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and offer code Glenn. Well, it's, I, I was just going to say that I agree with everything you're saying. And I think another thing that sticks in my craw and makes it very hard for me to hear the other side on affirmative action is something that I'm sure both of us have seen, which is that. And I may be wrong about this. Maybe I'm just too focused on this aspect of the issue. There is a way of being a black academic where you don't have to have published much, and yet you're treated like a god. I am not aware of that being as common for white academics or Asian academics. And of course, I see more of some aspects of academia than others. Of course, I'm a little bit primed to see this. And I'm not going to name any names, but too often I have seen over my time that you can acquire quite a reputation as a black academic without having remotely the stack of publications and, say, innovative paradigm suggestions that would be required of a white person being treated the same way that you are. And I think I have to say, I know it's called defensive, but I'm not sure what that term means. It's not that I don't feel like I've gotten enough attention. If anything, in linguistics, I think over the past couple of years, in some circles, I've become a persona non grata because I'm not wake, woke enough. But before that, I regularly got invited places. I was treated well. I got to be on committees and stuff. It's not that I was jealous, but I couldn't help noticing that in black academia in general, you don't have to have written or produced as much or said anything novel other than various ways of identifying racism to be lionized. And it, to me, that always looks like an insult. It's just, if I can't comfortably think, look at the big stack of things that person has written, if it's wrong for me to even think about it, and I'm supposed to think of their celebrity 
And I mean, even just within academia, not necessarily household names, but just their celebrities being based on their charisma and the fact that they fight racism and that all of these good white people see them as a useful symbol for the anti-racist position that they wish to be seen as espousing. It's demeaning. And yet, you know, I'm not supposed to think that. There's supposed to be a sense that it's different for black people. Is it? Why does it always have to be different for us? Because racism? I find that dodo thinking. And so, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I'll say one more time, it's not jealousy. I, you know, linguistics and academia have treated me very, very well, to quote Garrett Morris. It's not that I want something they have, but I can't help seeing that, you know, you don't have to work as hard as I did. And yet, if you are the right sort, you're treated as if you've done a whole lot more than you did. I don't like it. This is the stuff of uh, closed door and promise not to tell anybody I said this kind of talk. A person gets put up for a position. Let's say it's a governor of the Federal Reserve Board of, of the central bank of the country, of the United States governor. And you look at the academics who have been appointed governors. And, you know, they are people like Ben Bernanke, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, who was a professor at Princeton before he was elevated to that position. Or um, Janet Yellen, who was a professor at uh, Berkeley before she was elevated, elevated to that position. And you look at their publication records in the American Economic Review and the Review of Economic Studies and the Quarterly Journal of Economics and you, you, you look at their engagement with the development of the theories of monetary economics and macroeconomics, and you see that they are, right, they're players, they're players. And then a black woman gets put up for, to be the first, and it's, of course, a very exciting thing. This is Lisa Cook. She's a professor at Michigan State. She's an African-American. She's been president of the Black Economics Association. She's a student of Paul Romer, who is a Nobel laureate and a professor at Berkeley, and she's written a thesis and has an important paper that's gotten a lot of attention on the effect of violence on the production of scientific innovation by African-Americans using data from the late 19th and early mm. 20th century. But many people think the paper is fatally flawed. Oh. And it's the big paper in her CV, which is otherwise perhaps not as distinguished as one might expect for an academic being appointed to this position. But she's an African-American woman. And if you get into the business of saying she's not as qualified as somebody else for this position, this is affirmative action, you'll be accused of the, you know what you'll be accused of, you know. Oh, you don't think a black woman is as smart as, uh, I don't know, Ben Bernanke or Paul Krugman, who's never served in this, but could well have been nominated or some of these other luminaries in macroeconomics who follow very closely what goes on at the Fed and whose commentary is taken seriously. Now, it's not only academics who are appointed to the Federal Reserve Board. There are also people who have practical experience in finance and banking and so forth. But what are you, what are you supposed to say? Or let me give another case. Eric Lander was the scientific advisor for the Biden administration, and he's been fired by the president because he was 
abusive in his treatment of some subordinates and uh, used language and uh, uh, made made people feel you know unwelcome in ways that are his his manner of co- conduct, not his excellence as a scientist, but his manner of conduct was found to be unacceptable. So he stepped away. Uh, he, Eric Lander, was a mathematician and became a mathematical biologist who became the guy who was the head of a big lab at MIT that was doing human genome research and became a leader in the movement to map the human genome completely. That was a long, very well-funded and very scientifically profound exploration of whatever. But he's out. And he's been replaced. It's just recently been announced by Alondra Nelson and Francis Collins. Francis Collins has been in the administration. Alondra Nelson is a new appointee. She's an African-American woman. She's a sociologist. She's a member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, which is a distinguished scientific uh, thing. And she writes about the sociology of science and race. But let's just say, compared to Eric Lander in the minds of many people sitting in their labs all over the world, she's not really a science player. She, she's an outsider who is not as profound a thinker about science as was Eric Lander. Is she unqualified? I wouldn't say that without some careful uh, investigation. I would just say that a lot of people are going to think so. Um, the president has announced that he's going to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. A lot of liberals think with a 6-3 disparity in favor of conservatives on the court, you've only got three seats, that that person, whoever it is, ought to be able to lay down uh, dissenting opinions written from the point of view of profound constitutional legal um, uh, expertise Mm. that could be the template for a future legal movement which would push back against what the conservative majority is bound to do. They want an Antonin Scalia of the left. They want somebody at the top of their game. They don't necessarily have to come from academia, but the the most profound... That that person probably would. And would be a leader, an intellectual leader. Now, are there no black women capable of being intellectual leaders at the Supreme Court? I would never say so. I would never say it. But if we were to draw a list of the 10 most uh, profound, without reference to race or sex, just draw the list of the people whose writings uh, are indicative of a mastery sufficient to be the intellectual leader of a resistance movement against conservative jurisprudence at the court over the next quarter century, it's entirely possible that that list would not contain any black woman at all. Now, he's going to appoint a black woman. He's already said so. I mean, there's no turning back from that. Has anything been lost here? Dare anyone say that anything has been lost. And I want to say this, not just personally lost, lost for the country, lost for the future of the law. Has anything been lost? Did we give up anything whatsoever? I mean, let me put it this way. If I had a heart attack and the uh, physicians told me that I needed open heart surgery and they told me, however, 
we understand, Professor Lowry, that you're deeply committed to racial equity. We're going to find a black woman surgeon to do the procedure. I would say, I think, let's just find the best surgeon that you can possibly find to do that procedure. <laughs> if you restrict your attention to black women, the chance that I'm going to get the best possible care has been very significantly reduced. You know, everybody's thinking that surgery is different from the law, that these things are more, people do this with their hands. It's more holistic with the law than it is with, say, heart I surgery. I could be wrong. What would your I answer could, to I that? could be wrong. I could just be revealing myself to be an insufferable elitist. Uh, and if I were white, I'd be a racist. Give me the best friggin' surgeon. Give me the ones that everybody wants to have do the surgery on them, and I want them to do the surgery on me. Please don't tie your hands to looking only amongst black women when you find a person who is going to do this. Cut my chest open and stitch my heart arteries back together again. Don't do that to me. And there are people who are going to say, don't do that to the country. They're going to whisper it like this. They dare not say it out loud. I mean, the bottom line here is if you allow identity to infiltrate your judgments of excellence, at the very pinnacle of human achievement, you are going to undermine the effectiveness of what you do. You know, I think um, I'm going to get as specific as I'm going to get. Um, <laughs> uh oh, I'm holding on over here, John. I I'm, want holding the, the, I'm holding on. And I want the editors to be very careful with my pronouns because I'm going to keep it a they. I am quite familiar with the career of a black scholar where their stack of articles physically would be about this high. They are now well past 60. They have done about what they are going to do. They began with a certain, a relatively innovative observation or three but never followed it up with anything else of remotely that caliber. They participate to an extent in societal commentary based on their area of expertise, but nobody would say that their academic contribution was terribly significant on any level. I have now spent decades watching that person get one plum job after another. They can barely sit still in a solid university position before they get head canvassed, headhunted to take on some other position. And at each place, they arrive celebrated as the great mm-mm. <laughs> and the truth is, if you know their discipline, you know that they've never really done much. They have a certain courtly presence and yeah, that, that charm is definitely there, but their entire career has been based on a certain symbolism. There's this amen chord in the air whenever their name comes up. And some people would say, is that such a bad thing? And, and you know, it's not as if this means that somebody didn't invent penicillin or something like that. But it does foster a sense that what's interesting about black scholars is just their blackness and their coolness and their societal intent, rather than, God damn it, I have to say their chops, 
chops, not implying that my chops are, you know, 10.5 or anything near it, but chops. And also, I observe such a person and see that when it comes to being a presence for younger scholars, there carries in the air an idea that what you impart to younger people is issues of intent, issues of opposition, not hot-headed. This person's politics aren't extreme. And as a matter of fact, there's something I could say about this person's politics, which I won't because it would be too specific. But there's a sense that what you impart is issues of attitude and position rather than inspiring people with new ways of looking at things, with projects that they could embark upon, with ways of pushing the frontiers of a field forward. Instead, you have breakfast and you're charming together. You're black together. And I consider that to be a hindrance in that those younger scholars aren't being taught to push harder and to think outside the box, which is, after all, the nature of what we're supposed to be doing, not just as black people, but as academics in general, as people who are interested in what we might call the life of the mind, disturbs me. And the problem is that that scholar is not an anecdote, but one watches that sort of scholar and thinks, is this a good thing? And even apart from all of the condescension, the way everybody's face lights up whenever that person is talked about, even beyond that, I think that it doesn't serve our purposes as black scholars well. And I'm sure you've seen similar examples in your career. There, I got through it. I didn't mess up the pronouns. There's nothing specific. Nobody could hold me. But I needed to discuss this individual. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I could predict the reactions to this segment of our conversation, which is that we are uh, uns- insufferable, smug, uh, self-aggrandizing uh, elitist uh, who are uh, declaring ourselves to be the sole black people worthy of uh, the kinds of academic accolades that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know, man. I mean, I... I uh, Maybe I have to plead guilty. You know, <laughs> I, I know. You mean like you feel like you're well, the only well, one? I'm not the only maybe one, me. of course, but we are few. <laughs> In the nature of the case, we are few. I mean, when we call, or I call Ibram X. Kendi, professor at Boston University, where I used to teach, uh, an empty suit. I'm, I'm, I stand by my, I stand on that, man. I mean, I, I don't see any depth. I, 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 I've read books that have made me think I'm engaged with a mind that has mastery over uh, a discipline and that has a profound uh, set of insights to convey. And I don't see that there, you know. And, um, so I plead guilty. I'm an elitist. What are you going to do with me now? <laughs> I want black excellence. I it's want black just... excellence in the same register and with the same currency. The Jewish excellence is measured. They don't have to talk about it anymore because they are simply doing it. I want it in the same uh, currency as Asian excellence is measured. 
they don't, again, have to crow about being Asians and having Asianness injected into anything. They simply master the material. I don't want handouts. I don't want to be accommodated and have people look the other way and not apply the same standard of judgment to me as they would anybody else. I want the referee report to be done blind without knowing who I am. And when my article gets accepted in the journal, I want to be able to say, there, I'm a player just like anybody else. You don't need to know my color to know that I'm here and I'm making a contribution. I don't care if it doesn't work out to be 12% of the population. It can be 5%. It can be 3%. But if the people who are doing it are doing it, they're doing the real deal. They're doing astrophysics. They're, They're doing mathematics in the way that anybody is doing it. They're doing theoretical economics in the way that anybody else is doing it. That's what I want. And see, that's the, that's the nut of the problem here and how somebody like us feels about affirmative action, which is that there's this idea, tacit but strong, this is the worst kind of idea, that for black people and black people only, I'm going to be agnostic about Latinos, that there's a discussion that I'm not qualified to have. But certainly for black people, there is a sense that to do it the way everybody else is doing it is inauthentic. So if it's a Chinese-American student, yeah, they just have to do what everybody else does, and there's no question. But when it comes to us, to make that demand is asking us to be inauthentic to ourselves. And I don't think that makes sense. I think it's condescending. And it plays into the whole idea of we must change standards to admit as many of these people as possible instead of making it so that they are up to the standards. We're going to question what we, we're going to pretend to question what we think of as excellence in order to cover our butts about anti-racism. And for people who think that you and I are elitists to say that, well, despite the fact that I'm wearing a sweater vest today, I say, no, we're not (laughs) elitists. We are concerned with our people. We are concerned with what it means to be a modern American person. We have a basic historical perspective. And I think we have a faith in our own people that those who think of themselves ahead of the curve these days do not have, or there are those among us who think that Somehow there's this new kind of excellence that's black excellence. And as I've said before, I get the feeling that deep down what that excellence is supposed to be is volume and a certain relationship to regular rhythmic beats. And I don't think that's enough to be a truly successful people. And we've got to work on it. It just won't do. And if we have to be among the few voices who, you know, call it out, then I'm quite willing to be called all sorts of names for doing it. Because I don't think we're saying this from some evil Republican right wing. That's not to imply that Republicans or the right wing are inherently evil. But people hear this as a message from the right or as a message from Fox News. No, this is a message from just people. That's something that people really need to understand. Uh, John, I don't know, man. I think we may have reached an appropriate stopping point for this conversation. Notice that we're both really upset about this, and yet there's a certain kind of, like, both of us are sitting here angry. You know, we're doing a Glenn show, and both of us are sitting here stewing in our own decades of anger about this. And yet there's a certain kind of person who genuinely thinks that we're just mouthing these things because Tucker Carlson wants to hear it, or because, you know, we think we can get $20,000 a pop by giving speeches to Tucker Carlson saying these things. Folks, we mean it. 
This is real. Now, you may call us on what we're wrong about, but this is not a performance. I am not shilling for the right, and I don't think you are either. This stuff is deep. We feel it as deeply as the other people do. Indeed, John, that's well put. I'm not only angry, I'm, I'm, I'm sad, I'm despondent. Um, and, you know, uh, because we're losing or have lost. We are losing. You know. Um, we are losing. Yeah, I've got behind me, I'm going to do a really corny closing. My two little girls are a few rooms away playing in a room behind a closed door. And I really am thinking, I did a piece on this in the Times, I'm thinking these days, how are they going to be looked at by these diversity committees in, you know, eight to 11 years, especially if there's no such thing as a test? You know, it's the color of their skin and the fact that they're so diverse going to figure into whether or not they get admitted to things. And I just think what a hand in the face insult that would be to those two little girls. And yet apparently I'm a shill for the right wing. And the fact of the matter is there's nothing you can do about how those girls will be uh, deferred to because of their race in the future. Perhaps you can raise them and steal them against that uh, inevitability. But you know, the path of least resistance, of course, is to just take whatever comes your way and, and, and not uh, raise a question about it. Shit. <laughs> no. Affirmative action is the foundation of equity and inclusion. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, the whole movement not only in higher education, but also in the private sector and firms, employment practices and whatnot, and in the public sector in terms of appointments to a high office, uh, is, is the currency of the day. It's what people want. It's, it's, it's a movement, diversity, equity, inclusion. There are people getting well into six-figure salaries. I'm talking about thousands of them in universities, in uh, you know, uh, personnel administration offices within corporations, uh, et cetera, et cetera, whose living is built around diversity, inclusion, and equity. And, and we just gave the back of our hands to it, the whole enterprise. Those people have to find something wrong. That's the scary thing about them. There has to always be a problem. And there's nothing progressive about that. There's nothing, I hate to say it, but it discourages intelligence. It discourages analysis. It discourages real, realism. Yeah, it's really hard watching the explosion of that whole perspective. I mean, if you're getting paid for it, you have to find something. There has to be something to battle. There has to be some racism to uproot. Suppose there isn't any in any significant degree. Under that paradigm, there's no way of acknowledging that. And of course, a certain kind of person says, well, there's all what, yeah, but prove it. And usually they can't, not in a way that speaks to most of us as opposed to people in that inner circle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's winning and it's frightening to me. We're going to leave it at that, folks. Uh, Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, The Glenn Show. Every other week, uh, we're at uh, YouTube uh, slash uh, Glenn Lowry Show, and we're at... Um, the Glenn Show at uh, Substack. So check us out. Thanks, John. Have a good one, Glenn.